Welcome to the Actual Fluency Podcast. Each week you'll find inspirational, motivational interviews with some of the world's best language learners, industry experts, all trying to help you to learn foreign languages better, faster, and more efficiently. And here we go. If you're looking for a language teacher to enhance your language learning, then I highly recommend italki. Italki is the world's biggest tutoring platform and you can find thousands of teachers and tutors at very reasonable prices. Get a free lesson after completing your first lesson by going to languageteacher.co. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Actual Fluency Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, which is a really exciting one about the, the quest for your heritage, uh, in today's episode, John T. Yamashir comes on the show and talks about his experiences learning the language of his ancestors, the uh, Circassian language, which uh, I hadn't heard about before this recording. And uh, if and I think it's it's quite exciting to hear about other different kind of languages and peoples around the world and I don't know how many of you guys listening out there are actually learning a language for heritage reasons because I know that that is a big reason let's say your grandmother's from Germany or your parents migrated from Italy or wherever your heritage comes from there's a language there that could be useful to either discovering more about your past or talking to relatives as well in their original language or partners even you know you can you can learn the heritage language of your partner as well so that's an interesting story for today just before i let you loose on on the story of of the day in this episode i just want to give a quick shout out to the polygot cruise if you're listening to this episode on august 9th when the episode first went live then you can still register for the first cruise but uh, you have to be quick the registration ends august 15th so if you want to join me and 30 other people on the first ever cruise april 2020 then uh, you have to go quick to polygot cruise and register there's still a few days left if you're listening to this in the future then do check out polygotcruise.com for future cruises because it's definitely something that i want to do again and with different itineraries so we're already debating where polygot cruise number two is going to take place but um I, i'm thinking somewhere in north america what do you guys think let me know and enjoy this episode and uh, be sure to sign up to the cruise if you haven't already I have most often introduced myself as a third generation refugee. And uh, what I mean by that is, um, or the, the flip side of that is, I am the first person in at least three generations to be born, grow up, be a citizen of, and speak the language fluently of his country of birth, right? So what does that mean? I was born in the United States. Uh, clearly, I speak English fluently. I'm a U.S. citizen because I was born here. Um, for all intents and purposes, I feel comfortable here. There's, there's nobody who could come and forcibly remove me. And it's highly unlikely that there would be some violent unrest in the United States that might displace me anytime soon. You go backwards in time. Uh, my mom and my dad were both born in the Golan Heights of Syria, right? Uh, in fact, my, my mom was born in what is now technically part of Israel. So um, 
a whole slew of Circassians settled in the Golan Heights of, um, you know, the, the, the Middle East. Today, I have some relatives who are on the Israeli side. I have some relatives who are on the Syrian side. So my, my mom and dad were born in a region that was not their, their ethnic homeland, speaking Circassian, not Arabic, having learned Arabic, speaking Arabic as effectively as foreigners, even though they are living in that land, and then came to the United States uh, in, in the late 1960s, early 1970s to build a new home. So they, they came here as refugees because of war. You go one generation before them, I'll just stick with my dad's side of the family because it's just a little bit easier. Um, my grandfather was also born in that region, except that when he was born there, it was part of the Ottoman Empire. Wow, and yeah. So um, what he spoke, you know, in, in as much as Arabic was the government language of my father, Turkish was the government language of my grandfather, right? Um, and the, re the reality is that whole region is, is very, very ethnically diverse. So my dad growing up, um, he spoke a little bit of Turkish, a little bit of Hebrew, a lot of Arabic, some Circassian. Um, that's about it. My grandfather spoke those same languages, but Turkish was probably a little bit stronger than my dad's because of religion. Arabic was still pretty strong, but they spoke a different dialect of Arabic than, than the, uh, the local uh, Arabs did. Then I go to my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was born in a region that was not part of the Russian empire when he was born there but had become a part of the russian empire during the course of his life and so it was probably he was he i don't i can't imagine any monolinguals in my family for for a long time other than me right uh or oh i'll get to me in a minute i can't i can't imagine any monolinguals in my family for a very long period of time because even if i go back to my great-grandfather who was born in what is now uh part of the russian federation um, at the time of his birth, he would have spoken Circassian, but because there are so many other different ethnic groups within the Caucasus, I mean, the Caucasus is um, probably, if I had to guess, uh, you know, the size of a large U.S. state, it might be a third the size of Texas, mm -hmm. you know, so a large state, but not a huge state. Um, but it has more languages spoken there than the entire European Union. You know, Dagestan alone probably has about uh, a dozen or 15 languages spoken within it, right? So, right. you so know, Circassian, growing up... Just to get people uh, along, Circassian is an ethnic group. And did they have a, a region, a territory that was then kind of taken on by all these like wars and power struggles and empires building and changing? Or was it kind of a spread out? So... Um, so I'm an ethnic Circassian. Circassians are organized around roughly 12 tribes, 12 principalities. Each tribe has its own dialect. Some of those dialects are as close as like, um, you know, two dialects of Arabic or two dialects of Spanish. Some of them are as far as Portuguese to Romanian, right? So that, that's kind of how far. And it comes, it really de depends on where geographically your tribe was from. If you're geographically close, your dialects were close. If you're geographically far, your dialects were far. Got it. So the Circassians are the largest ethnic group historically and today, the largest ethnic group in the Caucasus. The Caucasus is this wondrous, amazing uh, part of the world where Europe and Asia kind of all intersect. There's a North Caucasus and there's a South Caucasus. 
The North Caucasus are north of the Caucasus uh, mountain range, and they are all part of the Russian Federation. The South Caucasus have historically never really, they've been in the sphere of influence of the Russian Empire, but not necessarily part of Russia. And so South Caucasian states would include uh, countries like Georgia, it would include countries like Armenia, and depending on whether you believe it's a country or not, um, I believe it's a country since I am a citizen of it, but Abkhazia. So that would be the South Caucasus. Uh, the North Caucasus would include the semi-autonomous uh, republics of the Russian Federation, which would include republics such as uh, Dagestan, uh, Ossetia, uh, Chechnya, Ingushetia, and then the three uh, titular Circassian republics, which are Kabardino Bakaria, Karshaevo uh, Cherkessia, and then Adygea. So that's kind of where we're from, or where I'm from uh, ethnically. Um, as is the case with human history, as um, stronger and larger and more powerful peoples expand, they create empires. Russia was not the only empire. Uh, it's not going to be the last empire either. Human beings, uh, you know, want to go out and conquer. Um, but as the Russian Empire expanded, it incorporated parts of what we called Free Circassia into the Russian Empire. And so, you know, that's kind of the, the little bit of back history there. And then in terms of geography, if you're if you're looking on a map or you're trying to reference where this is, um, the Caspian Sea is the eastern frontier of the Caucasus. The Black Sea is the western uh, uh, frontier of the Caucasus. And then the specific region where I am from, uh, where most of my family is from, is Kabardino-Balkaria, uh, or Kabardino-Balkaria, I guess in English. Uh, the capital of that is Nalchik. Kabardino-Balkaria uh, is just north of the state of Georgia and probably about an eight hour drive east of Sochi, which is where the uh, Winter Olympics were held a few years ago. Sochi was the capital of our country before it was incorporated into the Russian empire. Wow. Uh, my grandmother was Abaza, and I have many cousins who are uh, Abaza. And as a result of that, uh, a few years ago, I traveled to Abkhazia to visit them, and I secured my, my citizenship there as well. Uh, so now when I travel, I can travel to Abkhazia uh, I can own property, open a bank account, and I can travel to Russia without a, a visa because I hold that passport. Wow, very nice. And, and you know, going back to yourself, I, I don't know if you want to continue the story. I, I just wanted to know about when did you when did you get interested in this and find out about this? Was that something that came early on in your life, or did you kind of rediscover that as an adult and, and had to go back and ask your parents about what, what what was that about? What was that about? So you know, it's it's I've as I'm, I'm 40, I turned 42 this year. Uh, I've got four children in total, two for my first marriage, two for my second. And I've always been very open and supportive of, you know, exploring our identity, our ethnicity, our religion, our culture, our history with them. I was almost shocked as a kid that my father was so terse about, um, and my mother were so terse about our identity. And I, I don't, I'm not denigrating them. I, I think it's just part of the generation and the culture that they grew out of. And when I would ask them about what their parents would say, they were even more terse. And I, I don't know whether this is something to do with the austerity of our culture or whether it's something to do with this feeling of loss of being expelled, you know, ha having so many people die in war than being forcibly removed from your, from your region. Um, but as a kid growing up, I just, I, I can't say I was confused, but I can't say that I was clear on who I was. You know, I was a... Circassian, uh, originally living in Southern California where I was born, then moving to New Jersey where the bulk of my family in the United States lives. Um, I, I was this, you know, Circassian kid 
whose parents came from Syria, who was living in Southern California, who was a practicing Muslim. And all that kind of made sense to me. You know, it, it's funny. I think I have two small kids. I have two toddlers and two teenagers. To the teenagers, I think it kind of makes sense to them. I mean, I've explained it a little bit better, but for my little kids, it's just completely normal for them that we speak a couple languages at home and kids at daycare speak different languages. And so growing up as a kid, there, there weren't really any questions. That was just my reality and I accepted it. Yeah. But as time went on, um, you know, my parents wanted me to speak English so I wouldn't have an accent. Uh, so I could, and obviously we know today in modern linguistics that that doesn't, you know, that's not very likely that you're going to form an accent living in a country where uh, a language is spoken. But they were concerned that I wouldn't speak English properly. They were concerned I might be discriminated against. Uh, I think also, frankly, they were eager to practice and, and improve some of their English. So um, Circassian was always around me in the way that perhaps a, uh, you know, an Anglo-American in Los Angeles hears Spanish in the background. So it was always there in the background. Arabic was always there in the background. Little bits of Turkish and Russian, perhaps Hebrew every now and again were always in the background. But uh, to say that I could put two or three words together would be very charitable to me, <laughs> right? So um, what would happen was every couple of years when I was uh, small, we would go back to Syria to visit relatives, which is where the bulk of my dad's family uh, still resided. And when we'd go there, um, I would hear Arabic and I would hear Circassian, almost no English. And of course, my Arabic uh, sucked and my Circassian wasn't that much better. Um, I might be able to put three or four words together um, while I was there in either of those languages to just roughly communicate. Um, and as a result of that, I never really had the opportunity to connect to my, my personal history, my family, my culture, uh, my grandparents, right? So as time went on, I became a teenager. I think, I think it was always there in the background as almost like a, a picture of an of a old relative who might have passed away. It's kind of like, oh, there's a picture. I know what I know what that picture is, but because I know what the picture is, I don't need to know who the person was, right? But as I became a teenager, and I think this is part of human nature, you know, we start to ask ourselves, who are we? Where do we come from? And here in the United States, there was my dad and two brothers. That, that's the extent of the Circassian, of the, my last name is Yemisha. That was the extent of the Yemisha men that I could look to. And my father had one sister. Um, and that's just different. You know, I didn't have any guys in the family. And I'm not trying to be sexist or anything, but I think women look to women for role models and men look to men for role models. So I saw my dad and I saw two younger brothers and I thought, well, that's not enough for me to make a pattern. You know, our are my family typically uh, artists? Are they scam artists? Are they <laughs> politicians? Are they merchants? I don't know. So um, as I became a teenager, <clears throat> I think I became very interested in trying to reconnect with that part of my, my identity. So I went to high school uh, and in you know, typical American high school fashion, uh, American high schools are, are not known for producing quality foreign language speakers. <laughs> Did you pick a foreign language there? So I spoke, I, I spoke, I, I, I picked a foreign language and I, I, I picked German. And um, like many people that I've met in my life, you know, I went through four years of German and I could barely speak it at the end of my four years. It really, I'll fast forward a little bit now. So I, I studied German because there were lots of Circassians in Germany and I thought, well, you know, maybe I can go there someday and speak to at least some of my ethnic kin. And then uh, sophomore year, my second year of the four years of high school in America, 
I uh, also added French to my repertoire just because I can't say that I learned German through my German classes, but I can say I got excellent grades. And I think this is, I think it's because I do have an aptitude for foreign languages, but I also believe like many others do that uh, the way that languages are taught in many, many institutions is uh, very lacking. Oh, so yeah. I got great, I got great grades, but I didn't speak very well. Um, it really wasn't until I went to college that I realized how poorly I did speak German, where I went into um, an intermediate, you know, the second class after the beginner class, and I just completely fell apart. And that was after, you know, an entire um, four years <laughs> studying it in high school. And what I really did was I threw away my uh, textbooks. I stopped paying attention in class, and I just kind of did my own thing, and everything just kind of clicked. And that was the beginnings of... Um, realizing that I was not bad at learning languages. I just had bad teachers or not bad teachers, bad methods. I think the teachers really tried their best, but they were kind of forced to use these methods. So um, what happened there was as I picked up German, I thought, wow, this is an interesting way to learn a language. I've gone from almost nothing to being able to communicate and say almost anything I want to say, at least at the time. I, my German is very rusty now, but I can still have a conversation if I want to in German. Um, I, I've covered all this ground. Could I do this for circassian, right? Is it possible to do this for circassian? On this podcast, I've interviewed hundreds of language learners, some of the world's greatest polyglots and industry experts. And one thing they all agree on is the value of one-to-one -one tutoring lessons. And for this, I highly recommend italki. They have thousands of teachers in all price ranges, and they even have certified teachers who have taken diplomas or have degrees in the language you're learning. So whether you're just brushing up on your Italian ahead of a trip to Rome, or you want to master Russian to take the uh, exam, or whatever your goals are in languages, italki has a tutor suitable for you. And compared to private tutoring offline, it's really affordable. You can find informal tutors down to $5 an hour, or, and you can have trial lessons for even less. So if you want to master a language uh, from the comfort of your own home and you even get a $10 credit when you complete your first lesson, go to languageteacher.co and check out italki. It might be the best thing you do for your language learning this year. This is over 20 years ago. I was um, 18 or 19 years at uh, 18 or 19 years old at the time. This is um, what really began my trial and error process of figuring out how to learn a language. And the reason for this was I wanted to learn Circassian. Yeah. The problem is, um, other than materials, frankly, other than materials that I have produced over the last 10 years, there are almost no high quality materials that are designed for someone who speaks none of the language to learn the language. Right. Um, what I mean by that is there are some books over in, in the North Caucasus in Russia that are, that are available, but they assume that you read and write Cyrillic. They assume that you already speak it in the household to your parents. And so your starting point and your perspective are fundamentally different than somebody coming into it from scratch. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so I, I can honestly tell you over the last 20 years, you know, um, I, I, I've tried what I did was I tried every commercial method I could get my hands on, right? So I, I bought Rosetta Stone, I did Pimsleur, 
I've played around with Duolingo, obviously much more recently, uh, Living Language, um, whatever else, Asamil, I've done all those things. Um, my kind of, not really my aunt, but kind of my aunt, she was, uh, her father was the first prime minister of Jordan. And so she always had a lot of relationships at the UN. She worked at the UN International School. And so she finagled, um, she pulled some strings, got me in there for a few classes to kind of see how they teach children multiple languages and how they teach diplomats multiple languages. Um, figured out what the FSI was um, and uh, started kind of gobbling up their materials. Um, went over to the Resias Institute at Dartmouth and actually before he passed away was taught uh, in a kind of extended weekend class by John Resias who developed the rapid teaching programs that were uh, used by the Peace Corps. You know, you're, you've got to learn Swahili. You've got two weeks till you go to uh, Africa. We're going to cram as much as we can into your brain. So every, uh, even took ESL classes speaking English <laughs> to see how they would teach. Wow. So whether it was a book, a, a program, a, uh, I'm sorry, a book, a lecture series, a computer program, an in-person program, uh, a, a rapid weekend teaching thing, an extended online thing, personal uh, tutoring, you name it. I tried it and I tried it for Arabic because I was already a little bit knowledgeable in Arabic and I wanted to see if that method of teaching would differ. I wanted to see how different methods would differ depending on whether the language was close or far to English, Germanic, Roman, uh, Romantic, Asia, uh, uh, you know, Semantic, uh, Asiatic, whether it used a Latin alphabet or no alphabet like uh, some Asian, uh, like, like Mandarin does. There's no alphabet, it's a character set. Um, I wanted to see uh, whether people focused on audio methods, reading methods, visual methods, acting methods. Um, you know, kind of went through all this stuff and I realized uh, there is no rhyme or reason. There is no consistency <laughs> in any of these things. That's amazing. In any of them. Um, and the other thing that around this time, this is probably, uh, I'm now fast forwarding up to five years ago. I was fascinated by this, this kind of misplaced, but still semi-true, at least in my view, uh, opinion that um, if you know X number of words, you can communicate. And it's funny because I saw something on Reddit the, just this morning. Why are people so obsessed with this? I think people are obsessed with this because you can, you can kind of quantify it, right? I can go download a list of 1,500, 2,500, yeah. 5,000, and I can try to memorize them. And then it's the only real easily quantifiable method for you to measure your effort. Not necessarily your output, but your input, right? So it is tempting. It is tantalizing. And I said, well, I, I, let me do this. I will start translating these words. I, I developed this huge network of volunteers who would translate words in this occasion for me. So I said, let me start translating these words. And I learned, I, I, you know, I have uh, a nonprofit organization. I've got two linguists who are on my board. Um, one is John Calaruso. The other is Daniel Kaufman. John is a Harvard grad who teaches at uh, McGill in Canada. Uh, Daniel uh, teaches at CUNY and Columbia in New York City. And they joke that I've probably got a postdoc in applied linguistics uh, at this point. Um, <laughs> but started looking at, um, you know, sight everything from sight words for little children to uh, in the United States, California achievement tests, looking at um, Ogden's basic English vocabulary lists, Voice of America, <clears throat> uh, basic standard uh, vocabulary lists, word uh, frequency vocab uh, vocabulary lists, and you know, there are probably out there uh, a half a dozen, quote unquote, well, word pools, right? They might be high frequency, mm. they might be useful words, they might be this. And I actually 
typed them all up and did some Excel magic. And I realized there's very little overlap there, right. <laughs> you know? So let me give you an example. Uh, I, I went out and bought a Rutledge um, word frequency dictionary in English. And, um, be, you know, because of the statistical nature of how those word uh, dictionary, frequency dictionaries are compiled, um, in the version that I had, three of the 12 months are not on the list. <laughs> what? So, so yeah, three of the 12 months are not on the list. So if you're looking at a word frequency list as a means of a basic vocabulary set, um, because of statistical quirks, it's not going to do it. That's really um, funny, actually. I, w I wonder which months. Uh, uh, I don't remember offhand, but I just, <laughs> like, you know. And then the other weird thing is I started looking at um, different vocabulary sets for different languages, all from Rutledge. And I'm not, you know, Rutledge is a, I, I use them not to denigrate them, but because they are uh, a well-known, well-trusted, reliable source. Um, what I came to realize there was, you know, in almost every course or program or book or whatever that I'd ever studied, the word help was probably one of the first 20 words, maybe 50 words that, that they would teach you. Can you help me? I'm lost, yeah. right? Um, in almost every language that I looked at, the word help was like word number 500. Right. So that's when I also realized there's a difference between helpful words, no pun intended, helpful slash useful words, and words that are frequently used. Because if you're learning a new language, there is going to be an overlap between the words that you want to learn and high frequency words. Clearly, you want to communicate with other individuals. But there are probably words that you want to learn that are useful and helpful that are not necessarily high frequency. Um, you know, just off the top of my head, the word help. Another off the top of my head, the word ticket, right? Because if you're learning a foreign language, presumably you're going to travel there. And so airport terminology, which is not highest in frequency, but could be highest in helpfulness, mm. um, would be something. And then the last thing is, as I started looking at all these um, auxiliary lists that were developed for children to learn, they had lots of numbers, you know, and the reality is you don't, if you're just learning a language, yes, you need to know all the numbers, but you don't need to know them in your first 500 words, right? No. Um, so uh, what I had done over the years is, um, so at the end of all this, looking at children's kind of sight words, looking at high frequency lists, I had compiled a list of words that I wanted to know in my everyday life, speaking to my mother and my father, who were, you know, are still alive, still are circassian speakers, to my my current wife, who's a native circassian speaker, and raising our children here in Chicago, where there are virtually no ethnic circassians, and uh, among the half dozen who are here, very few of them speak circassian. Mm. Um, you know, teaching them, speaking to them every day, um, I compiled a list of about five thousand words that. Um, you know, every time something came up in conversation, I didn't know how to say something and I asked my wife, you know, what does this mean? How do you, what's that word? And uh, she might know it or she, she might say, I, you know, we, we use a Russian loan word for that. So I'd look it up in a dictionary and I, from the ground up, compiled my own list of, of just shy of about 5,000 words. And then just for uh, shits and giggles, part of my French, um, what we, what I then did, again, this is over many, many years, kind of combine all of these auxiliary word lists ranging from like Ogden's basic English to Voice of America's uh, basic vocabulary list, sight words, um, California achievement test vocabulary sets, SA, not SAT because that's a little bit more advanced, um, word, word frequency dictionaries uh, commercially and freely available. And then finally, and this is really the, the, the part that took the longest, um, 
the uh, Oxford CEFR up to B2, because I think above B2, you start to get a little esoteric in terms of vocabulary. Bringing all those vocabulary sets together, um, what I have compiled, and I, I'm almost done, but what I have compiled, what I am compiling is um, my master word list. It's probably gonna be about six or 7,000 words when it's done. Um, and I'm probably gonna finish it up in a few more months, but that's the word list where I, I, I would personally feel satisfied that you know if I had learned every word on that list, I could probably communicate as well as I would want in most of the languages that I speak or am learning or want to learn better. Right. How do you combine that with, uh, say, the grammar? Or, you know, especially the Slavic languages have very uh, difficult grammar and, and the word list, you yep. know, the verbs or, or no, actually every word, every word on the list would be much more likely to be found in one case rather mm -hmm. than the others. Did you account for that or how, how do you plan on tackling that as you, as you, yeah. Through? So you, you, you're getting for your listeners, right? They, we, you have a very informed listener group, right? So we all understand that the definition of a word is kind of spongy, right? Are you talking about a word? Or are you talking about a lemma? Are you talking about the dictionary format? Are you talking about the fully conjugated? I mean, you know, in some languages you can have up to 12 verb tenses, moods, cases, whatever combination yeah, of those yeah. variables you want to add. So when I'm talking about words, I'm talking about what we call in the United States head words, right? right. So go, go is the head word, went is a permutation of go. And of course, um, that's simple from a statistical perspective. It's clean on paper, but the reality is you would never say, you know, I goed last week to the store, right? So it, it, it falls for, it, it sounds good in theory, it falls short in practice. Right. So um, I, so how do I get around that? I started off saying, I'll just memorize words. And then I realized that doesn't really work, especially as I got into Russian where there's verb aspect, which, you know, you can have a perfect or an imperfect version of a verb, which, which is dictated by whether it's uh, been completed or is an ongoing act uh, activity. And I realized things kind of fell apart there. Um, so I move, and then the other thing is once you get beyond your first thousand words, you start moving to kind of abstract concepts. You know, when you're first learning a language, the word like case, right? Is case, is it like in Russian, is it case like grammatical case, like a padiz? Or is it like a case, like a matter, like, uh, you know, <laughs> right? Is it something you're doing? Is it a court case? Is it a physical box that something goes into, right? So <laughs> it, 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 first of all, as you get into these higher order words, they have multiple definitions, right? right. So now, you know, is the word run as a verb versus a noun one word or two? even though yeah. it's spelled the same, right? So we start, I started to get into all this complexity and this whole idea of memorizing um, words kind of fell apart on me. So um, what I started to do, I, I remember um, playing with Pimsleur and thinking, you know, this is not bad, but it feels like these dialogues were written after World War II. <laughs> like, I, I literally remember in Russian, there were dialogues like, um, Mrs. Pronin, is your husband at home? I have urgent business for him. <laughs> the idea being that Mrs. Pronin has no value as a business person, right? And of course, she's going to be home, right? All the secretaries are women. There's nothing like, you know, what are you doing later? It's like, may I invite you to a bar for some, uh, you know, a, a amazing business conversation. It's just, they feel very dated. And yeah. um, I've actually transcribed uh, all of the German Pimsleur and all of the uh, Russian Pimsleur just to see what they teach you. I actually have a blog post about this on my on my website. But they don't teach you a whole lot, you know, and for the amount of money that, you know, the lesson one or level what they they've added 
uh, levels four and five, but levels one, two, and three, right? 30 lessons a piece. You're going to put in 15 hours if you just do it once. Yeah. A lot yeah, of people do it more than once. You don't learn a lot, right? No, um, it doesn't include the silence. No. Yeah, and then on the description that, yeah, yeah, it's 15 hours, but every single sentence they ask you to repeat it, which is like a five to 10 second silence. Yes. So that really adds up. So I don't, it would be fun to trim the silence from Pimsleur and see how much is actually left, but it's not much. That's also, it's not much. It's not much. And then, and then, um, I stumbled across, uh, Glossica and I think, um, the, the folks at Glossica put together a very novel, very interesting thing. The idea is mass sentences. And, you know, it was around this time that I'd finally stumbled across. So a lot of things were converging. I, I was moving away from vocabulary. I was moving towards sentence-based input. Um, I believed that if I, you know, I remember one day my wife said something to me and I thought to myself, I'm so stupid. I don't know how to say that. And then I thought, well, of course I don't know how to say that. I've never heard that before. <laughs> this light bulb went off in my head. Like I need to see, read, or hear something at least once before I would know how it's properly said definitively, right? Without just kind of intuitively figuring it out. But then I also figured out that, um, I also figured out that with enough input, I would dynamically generate grammatically correct output. And this sounds strangely like Stephen Krashen because it is Stephen Krashen's theories, right? I didn't know it at the time. What I realized was, you know, I, I looked around at what my parents were able to do. My parents cannot read or write Circassian. They were never taught the language. I know for a fact they never stepped into a classroom where Circassian was a, uh, a language of instruction. They were never told what the grammar was, and yet they speak it perfectly, better right. than English. And they've been living in the United States for, you know, 45 years now. Um, and then I look at my two toddlers, you know, who are not capable yet of reading or writing, and they speak Circassian really well. I mean, the, the, the basic mistakes that kids make, I would argue they make fewer of them in what I would argue is my harder ethnic language, just because we speak so much. In fact, there's even certain times, like there's, there's a lot of complexity in uh, Circassian verbs. Um, I'm not going to get into the details, but there's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of prefixes and affixes. Circassian is a, is a polysynthetic language. So as a result of that, our word structure can get really, really crazy. There are times where I'll actually see... Um, I'll see my son. Like my son is like, uh, the other day, I was like, uh, what's up, Sarabdism? What are you doing over there? So, something. Zizorasha is then the verb. It is semi-reflexive because a lot of verbs in Circassian have these um, prefixes that show who's doing it and who's receiving it. So I could see him right then and there experimenting in real time. Does this sound right? Does that sound right? And what he's really, it was, am I doing it? Is he doing it? Or are they doing it? And he's not consciously thinking, you know, he's saying what sounds normal in this context. And he got the right answer. So, you know, looking at, you know, lots of input gets you lots of output, but it has to be lots of input. That's when I realized, you know, something like Glossica is very interesting and very novel, but I, as, and I actually bought Glossica and I'm like, all right, I'm going to learn Russian this way. And um, a couple things that I realized, what, and with all due respect to Mr. Campbell, you know, he's got a great program that he's developed, but why are the sentences so strange? You yeah. know, Enzo comes from the North, you know, I play tennis every day, but not on Tuesdays. I'm not going to say this stuff in everyday life, you know? Yeah. The, the other thing that I realized is I, I have 
four kids, I have a full-time job, I have limited time. 95% of my time learning a language is spent in my car during my commute. Um, so what I, what I did as part of this sort of 10 year odyssey to learn circassian, and I'm still learning circassian. I mean, I speak it well enough that there's almost nothing I can't say, but I just wish I spoke it, you know, and side note, what is the only correct answer to how many words you need to learn the language? More than you know today. <laughs> it's, you always want to know more. So I want to speak better. Um, so um, through, uh, you know, I have a nonprofit foundation. I've produced lots of materials to learn circassian. So I have all these kind of byproducts of, of learning language materials. Um, during the course of my odyssey, I had purchased and um, I, I'd purchased like, I think the top three phrase books for the top five most widely spoken languages. I just went to Amazon and I bought them. And then over the years, I had kind of, you know, taken all those phrases out of the books, sometimes electronically, more often than not manually typing, put them all into this master, master Excel database. Um, and what was interesting was, regardless of whether it was Chinese or Arabic, German or, or, or Russian or Spanish, um, threw away the, the L2, just looked the L1 so I could normalize. There was a remarkably small number of discrete phrases that I found. There was not more than four or 5,000 phrases altogether. And then what I realized is that a lot of these phrases are permutations. Hello, how, hello how's it going? What's up? How you doing? How are you? Right, mm -hmm. Th those are kind of two phrases really. And then there were phrases that were um, too specific. You know, uh, excuse me, sir, could you help me with my luggage? That, that, that's a long phrase that only has one use case, right? Excuse me is a nice short phrase. Can you help me as a nice short phrase? This is my luggage as a nice short phrase. And if you learn those three, you can create a longer phrase. So um, went through all that data and uh, arrived at just around 1500 phrases that I really felt as somebody who um, wanted to improve his occasion would cover every facet of life. Um, and then what I started doing is recording uh, myself saying them because I would read them, right? recorded myself saying them and then started putting these kind of really ugly audio files together. And uh, through trial and error, what I realized was phrases were, were good for me. And I think they're good for a lot of people because, you know, if you're learning Duolingo, bears don't wear pants is not the most useful thing to learn, <laughs> right? But if you're, if you're, if you want to be able to communicate with other human beings, I'm lost. That's too fast. This is good, right? These sort of super generic and super short phrases that can be mixed and matched and combined to say lots of different things. Mm. Um, those are very helpful. So what I realized was, you know, um, sentences were the way to go because then you get, you get vocabulary in context. Yeah. Um, but sentences had to be useful and meaningful. So here we go, you know, Stephen crashing again. Um, and then for a guy like me who, who was doing this on his commute, what I realized um, finally was the, the sentences had to be roughly speaking, not more than one and a half seconds long and not more than five syllables in length. Right. And the reason for that is that's where you have enough time in sort of a three or five second window of listen and repeat to store those sounds in your short term memory and then retrieve them so you can speak them aloud and still remember the content. Right. So you, you, you can repeat a, a series of syllables. You can understand context and meaning, but doing all that together, you know, th that's what took time. So I, I figured, hey, you know, this is working pretty well. There's a 
probably a couple thousand ethnic Circassians around the world that follow my work and you know they benefit from from what I put together. But it's very time consuming and expensive to produce you know all this stuff because there's not that many Circassians. I'm in the United States, they're in Russia, you know, blah, blah, blah. So um, what I started to do was I work with my wife to get all these things. Well, all these things were already translated into Russian because there's not that many Circassians who speak English, but there's lots who speak Russian. Mm. So I would take everything in English. My wife would translate them into Russian. Then we'd ship it to, uh, you know, a linguist where we're from who would then put it into Circassian. Around this time, I realized that um, I, I, in the UK, you guys have this um, uh, uh, Alexa, right? Uh, Amazon Alexa. Yeah, yeah. So um, the voice engine that sits behind Alexa is called Amazon Polly. Uh, and Amazon Polly is freely available to developers. Oh, I mean, they charge you, but the platform's uh, available to developers. So what I discovered was I could take all these phrases that were in Russian, um, and I could dump them into Amazon Polly, and I could produce MP3 files that had all these phrases in them in my listen and repeat format. So um, what, what I uh, originally ended up with was um, something where the English portion of like, um, hello, how are you? would be actually the Amazon Polly Russian voice <laughs> because they don't allow you to switch languages very easily. So it'd be like, hello, how are you? Привет, как дела? Right? So it, it, would, it, it was so jarring. Um, so eventually I uh, hooked up with a uh, developer. Um, I hooked up with a developer who built for me a custom portal that I then was able to use to experiment and, and really very rapidly say, so here's 500 sentences. They're of varying lengths of, okay, magic formula, one and a half seconds long, less than five syllables, blah, blah, blah. I was able to throw all the stuff in there to figure out what the timing, what the cadence, what, you know, the whole algorithm that I now use. Um, and I experimented by teaching myself or trying to teach myself Russian using my methodology, my content, my platform, the whole nine yards. And um, I spit out these, you know, I would say they're, they're probably the next generation of, if you were to take, you know, what is Pimsleur, what could be Glossica in the future, and just to put all those things that I just talked about and put them all together, they're using text-to-speech voices, which are imperfect, but for a learner, consistency that's imperfect is a lot better than inconsistency that is perfect, which is what you get when you have a native speaker. Mm. Um, but then the, the other thing is the ability to just very rapidly and very quickly experiment this became like my R&D facility. So for about a year, I experimented, you know, with, with, you know, different lengths, different durations, different this, different that, to really come up with something that I thought made sense. Um, I think my Russian sucks because I don't speak it at home with my wife, but because we speak Circassian in the home, but she is a native speaker of Russian. And every now and again, we'll speak and she would swear I sound like, you know, somebody who's been studying Russian uh, in university for two years and just hasn't had enough practice. So mm -hmm. I know that my method works. I know that my content works. I know that, you know, all this stuff works. Um, and what I've, it is all self-funded out of my own pocket. What I've done is I've actually built uh, a mobile app. I sent you an invite to one and I know you're busy, so you probably haven't had a chance to look at it, but uh, I actually built a mobile app where um, we take all this stuff and we kind of put it into one place and, uh, um, in the beta version, which is, you know, just kind of friends and family, we have 20 languages, including Circassian, that are on the, that are on the platform. Um, Circassian is the only one with a human voice because there is no text-to-speech engine for Circassian. <laughs> um, and the rest of them are all Amazon Web Services synthesized voices. So that, that's, that's how I went from this guy who 
thought he sucked at learning languages and only spoke one to a guy who sucks less at multiple languages today. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the club. I, I'm, I'm very experienced in, in that last part there. So uh, yeah, it's f- fantastic and uh, really unique as well. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think I've had many on the podcast who has had quite a journey like that. Um, so do you want to just give uh, the name where people can find out more about this, uh, this app or, or your, your, your work if they want to, yeah yeah no uh and i i you know i i thank you for that uh yeah uh the name uh so if you want to see my nonprofit work that's where this all started you can go to nasip.org that's n-a-s-s-i-p like paul nasip.org that's where all my nonprofit work started still exists the website is a work in progress, but that's where I talk a little bit about the Nesip Foundation. It's an actual not not for profit foundation registered, um, recognized by the United States government as a nonprofit foundation that is designed to protect and promote Circassian culture, history, and language. Um, so that's that's you know one place you can learn a little bit more about me. And then uh, where all that nonprofit work kind of culminated into what I just described, which is kind of the commercial application of it, is uh, Optolingo, and that's on the web at opti opti lingo l-i-n-g-o dot com and i'm not sure when the podcast is going to air uh right now we have the old version of our site because we're not publicly promoting we're in beta for the app so we're not publicly promoting it yet we only have five languages listed on the site um but in the next two weeks i would say maybe early to mid-august we should have the new website up and running with all 20 languages on the platform and the mobile app available very cool very cool one thing I want to know a little bit more about is how did you, for your kids, obviously you, you had the experience from your parents of, which is probably a usual, I mean, I've, I've definitely heard that story before where in a, in a migrant family, the, the language, the heritage language kind of gets forgotten and, and it's the language of the country that, that is in focus. Because like you said, the parents believe that it would help the, the child to know the the language of the country uh, exclusively um but did you have a like a, a strategy or like a plan for your kids when you got them for for your la- other languages like occasion did you have a very so strategy like that or, or how, no no we the, the 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 strategy is so blindingly simple that we don't call it a strategy it's just the way we we live um we speak to them exclusively in circassian and, and actually, I would say my best, my best teacher of Circassian is not me. It's not even my wife. It's my five-year-old. Oh, he'll be five in October. <laughs> it's my five-year-old son. Right. You know, it's my five-year-old son because he'll spit out something really quickly. And while I'm trying to decipher it, he'll then run around the kitchen making a big mess. Or, you know, while I'm trying to get him to stop or do something or put on his clothing, um, and of course, little children require lots of repetition, right? So that, yeah. that's great for me, you know? Um, so for example, let me think, uh, you know, put on your clothes, right? This is not necessarily a high frequency set of words. <laughs> you know, I don't think this would be a very strange thing to see in a phrase book, right? I mean, book for parents, maybe or a phrase book to say to people you just met the night before. I don't know. Um, so put on your clothes, put on your clothes. We should, we should, we should, right? So saying this like a million times to him every morning when he does not want to put on his clothes <laughs> or to my daughter who loves to take off her clothes, right? 
Right, so saying that a million times, don't take off your clothes, don't take off your clothes, it, it builds in that repetition. Um, so our, our, our real strategy was just to um, speak to them exclusively in circassian. We do speak, my wife and I do speak occasionally to each other in English when there's like very complicated topics like estate planning or, you know, career stuff or, or medical stuff, right? Um, the kitchen table talk of circassian doesn't carry us that far or it becomes very... <laughs> it becomes very complex to talk right. about an MRI, you know, or, or health insurance premiums. Right. Sure. Um, but we speak to them exclusively in circassian and they don't like to speak to us in English. Um, it's funny because a lot of people who speak these heritage languages, especially circassians, the children don't like to speak the heritage language. And a lot of my friends, they'll say, well, how are you able to convince your kids to speak it? And the dirty secret, I, I don't call anybody out on this, but the dirty secret is, when parents say we speak to our kids in, in that heritage language, they're not, they're not because I, I get, I know it for a fact. If they really did celebrate the language, speak it with pride and speak it exclusively, or at least more than 90% of the time to their children, their children would prefer that language in the same way they prefer the L2 that is becoming dominant in that household. Yeah. So in our case, uh, part of it was just always making sure that we spoke to them in that language, making sure that we speak predominantly to each other when we are around them in that language. But part of it also required us to invent words that just don't exist in the language or, or you know, loan words. Like, for example, and this is where it gets really convoluted. So uh, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what the word for dishwasher is in Russian, but I, I know there's no native word for dishwasher. In, in my language, in circassian, right. right? So uh, when we're talking about a dishwasher, we'll say, Hakshuk Zatasha Mashina, right? Hakshuk dishes, Zatasha, the thing that watches, Mashina, the machine, right? Hakshuk Zatasha Mashina. So that's a lot of things to put together, right? Yeah. And when you're speaking very quickly, it, it doesn't always make the most sense, but our kids understand it and it allows us as complicated and uh, sometimes stressful as it is, it um, reminds us to avoid the temptation of using loan words because it's a slippery slope. The moment you start using loan words, you start you then start using loan phrases, then you switch languages, and then your your heritage language or what you want to be your L1 starts to slip down, and your L2 becomes your L1. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely a danger, but I think it's very good that you did it that way and. I think part of the, I mean, the strategy, if, if we were to call it that, is simply just to do it because I think there's a m massive resist, natural resistance towards actually doing it, especially for, it's probably not as big a deal now, but it definitely was. Like all the people I've had on the show who, who talk about, you know, last generation or, or the one before that going abroad, there definitely was a big pressure. Maybe there was a bit more intolerance to foreign cultures. I, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but there definitely seems to be, it's moving in the right direction where instead of, you know, schools saying uh, it's only English, 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 suddenly uh, languages are being recognized and there's like, um, it, it's become more interesting that way. So that's a really good uh, uh, progression to see. Um, are you adding any other languages to your kids? Uh, any other ideas like Russian, for instance? Uh, yeah. Answer? So, um, yes, we are adding Russian. Uh, they both go to a uh, daycare program that has a predominance of Russian speakers. Um, oh, cool. 
the, a lot of the daycare teachers there are bilingual between Russian and English. Uh, the director is bilingual. And I, I want to say at least 40%, at least 40% of the kids are also bilingual in Russian as well. So they are picking up a lot of Russian. When we travel back to visit friends and family uh, in our homeland, um, they'll pick up a lot of Russian because kids there, frankly, they speak Circassian a little bit better than kids there do just because of the decline of my, my ethnic language. And then at, just as a little joke, you know, when we're in the household, um, you know, when, when my son is feeling a little silly or when he's being a little, you know, misbehaving, pretending like he doesn't understand me, I'm, I'll, I'll just whip out to him like, so I'll just turn around and throw these little kind of phrases out at him and he'll kind of look at me with this goofy with this goofy uh, grin and he'll turn around and be like, uh, or uh, uh, I don't want to eat. I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. So, you know, he'll say these little things, but it's always just as a little bit of a joke. And then he switches right back into Circassian because that's where he really feels comfortable. Right. That's good. That's really good. And I hope that uh, people listening definitely are inspired to, to do the same with, with their kids. Uh, whatever language that they might have from, uh, from a heritage background. It is draining though. It is absolutely draining. Um, it, 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 it is no less draining than waking up at 6 a.m. every morning to exercise, to be in shape. Mm -hmm. it, it is really, it, it's a commitment. It requires a lot of discipline. There were so many times, Chris, where I, because, you know, my, my command of circassian has improved as my children have gotten older for all the reasons that I just described. There were at least two or three times where I turned to my wife almost in tears and I said, let's just give up because I can't, I can't improve as quickly as these little guys are improving right. or I can't speak quickly enough to stop them from doing things that might be dangerous to them. Um, but then that's when I would just kind of hunker down and just redouble my efforts. Um, and honestly, you know, I, I think <laughs> that's another thing being this um, unlikely guy who now has language courses that he's selling and a lot of people do this, right? Um, I'm not a guy who was a hobbyist. I don't think I'm uh, um, atypical from a neurological perspective. Um, I'm not a corporation that said, let's make money. I'm, I'm not a computer programmer who said, let me turn this into an algorithm. I was literally a guy who wanted to learn this language so he could speak with his grandparents who are no longer with me. Um, and then who started helping other ethnic Circassians who also wanted to learn the language. And then eventually got to the point where I, I want this language to survive because it's a dying language. I wanted this language to survive so much that I wanted my kids to speak it. And I, I had to learn, I had to learn how to speak it quickly because <laughs> you know, my kids are not going to wait for me. You know, when I was, you know, when I was younger, I want to learn French. Well, you know, maybe not this year, maybe next year. My kid gets one day older every day. And according to some research picks up, you know, 20 or 30 new words a day. I, I've got to keep up with them. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to give up on this dream. So that's really informed a lot of my, my efforts and my strategies. And I can imagine that's why also that a lot of parents don't uh, pass on their language to their kids. It's just because of the, the strain. It's so much easier just to stick to English in, in many cases. That we it is. It is. It's stressful. It's tough. And a lot of parents, you know, they're, they're focused, as they should be, they're focused with putting food on the table. You know, they don't have the luxury sometimes to... Um, you know, partake in these kind of exotic languages, especially Circassian. I mean, the as much as I love the language, the reality is it's not the language of a state. It's not the language of religion. You can't eat it. You can't buy it. You can't sell it. There's very few, there's almost no media that's produced in this language. It has very little commercial value. 
Um, and the reality is most people, you know, their day to day is focused on their commercial viability. So yeah, I don't begrudge anybody for, for who's not able to do it. I, I'm sure for a lot of listeners, it will be the, their first uh, they've ever heard of it as well. So, it, but that's also fun, you know, to have some input and, and ideas from lesser known languages and cultures. I, I think that's, that's a big part of the, the podcast as well to give some insights. And I'm reminded of, of episode 148 as well, where I had um, Agev from Scotland on the podcast. He was talking about uh, Scottish Gaelic and how he was uh, passing that on to his kids and how he's, he he realized that there was just nothing being done. You know, it was all old people speaking yeah. in his region. And so he just started the project similar to yours and, and, and the stories that you tell about your kids are actually exactly what I, I got from him as well, that, you know, he wanted his kids to, to speak that language first and they will always get English. That's the thing that I think sometimes parents don't realize is if you live in America or in the UK, even the kids are going to speak English. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just a fact, you know, that there's no way that they're not going to learn English if they're in that country because uh, the school system, the, uh, like the day to day, everything else, like you've got Hollywood and shows and, and everything it's just impossible not to learn English really. So yeah. really learning the, the kind of the heritage language is, is way more important. And, um, I think it's a, it's a great effort and, uh, you know, very commendable because also, like you said, it, it, the kind of the commercial viability of it is, is definitely probably next to nothing. And, and so it's, it's really a passion project. And um, yeah, that's a, it's a lot of work, I can imagine. It's draining, but you know, everyone needs a hobby. <laughs> yeah, when you see the results and, and you probably connect with, with, with some of your people from all over the world because of it. You know, I, I feel like I, that's absolutely right. And for me, um, you know, it was very, very heart, not word, even in English, I don't know how to explain it really. My whole life, I, I grew up and uh, I saw my dad and I saw two younger brothers and that was kind of it. And then every couple of years we'd go to Syria and I would meet these other cousins that I couldn't really communicate with. And they're all younger than me. So, um, you know, who am I, where do we come from? You know, all this stuff, just all these unanswered questions. Eventually, um, I learned Circassian well enough and I traveled widely enough that I was able to, uh, reunite my branch of the family tree with a branch of the family tree that is in Turkey. And then the original branch, which is still in Russia. Um, and not only was I able to reconnect with those people, like find them, I was actually able to speak to them that I, I can't in any language. I cannot put into words what it feels like to look at a man, your own age, who has the same facial features as you that, you know, for a fact is your relative because of family trees. And we've, I've done genetic testing as well. So I know they're my relatives, but to be able to um, talk to those people in our ethnic language mm. and hear the other side to so much more depth, the other side of the personal family mythologies around my grandparents and my great grandparents and how and why they, this happened and you know, how and why that happened, it moved me to tears. And then to, to have them take me back to our ancestral village and show me, you know, this is where this guy was born, that's where that guy's buried. There used to be a house here, you can still see the foundations. 
you know, that I, I felt like a cultural orphan my whole life. And for me, it wasn't until I was able to unlock this language. I wasn't able, to, until I acquired this language, I was not able to unlock all of this knowledge that my body, that my brain needed to consume to feel whole again. And, you know, I think whether you are a multilingual person, bilingual, multilingual, or a polyglot, there's something in that story, in that experience that drives all of us, right? There's a reason that somebody chooses, you know, somebody might be um, a, a white American who wants to learn Mandarin, right? Well, there's, there's a reason they chose Mandarin as opposed to Swahili, or there's a reason they chose Swahili as opposed to Afrikaans, right? There's some connection that people crave that, that they, that learning the language they believe is going to help enable them. Um, and anything that people like you, people like me, uh, you know, the Pimsleurs of the world, the Glossicos of the world, Duolingos of the world, anything that any of us or any of those apps or programs or whatever can do to help further that goal, that's all additive. It's all good stuff. Yeah, definitely. And I, I wish that there was a way for more people to kind of connect with their heritage and, and learn their heritage languages because – yeah. You know, we, before the call, we talked about how how nearly everyone wants to learn a language, but I think that desire is stronger with people who, uh, you know, are in some generation uh, immigrant, you know, who is maybe the native languages. Let's say for the U.S. example, their their native language is American. They don't know any other languages, but their parents' native language is different. Uh, just one generation back. Yeah. Um, and you see that a lot, uh, or maybe they know a few words, you know, but they don't, or they understand a little bit, but they really want to just speak it and, and use it, you know, with their family members. And I hope that your, your kind of, uh, your, your little speech on, <laughs> on, on that can, can help um, inspire people to, to do something about that, because obviously nothing happens without effort and uh, learning a language is very time consuming and energy consuming, as you know, and um but I still hope that, that people listening might uh, be inspired to look up their uh, heritage languages and, and give it a crack because I'm sure there's going to be more materials on, on those languages than uh, this occasion like you, you overcame. Where there's a will, there's a way. That's exactly it. I mean, as long as, as, long as there are speakers, then you'll be able to, to learn the language, right? Yep. Speakers yep. or materials. But um, until, until then, just uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your fascinating story. Um, I really enjoy it. I can't believe it that that so much time has passed already. That's <laughs> the 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 drawback to uh, to interesting uh, discussions. The time just well, flies. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for uh, not telling me to shut up earlier on. <laughs> I'm surprised that we've taken this much time as well. And like I said before, if you ever find yourself out in Chicago, um, you got a place to stay. Fantastic! I'll make it. I'll make a trip out of it. And uh, just for for the last time, did you just want to repeat why people can uh, get in touch and maybe they want your experience or or tips on how they can learn their heritage language? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um. So if you want to check out my nonprofit work, uh, or or learn a little bit about uh, the Circassian people or Circassian language, you can go to nasip.org. That is N-A-S-S-I-P, like Paul, nasip.org. Uh, if you're interested in the commercial application of my experiences um, or want to check out any of the 20 languages that we're trying to help people learn, you can check out uh, our commercial website at optolingo.com. That's O-P-T-I. 
L-I-N-G-O, optolingo.com. Fantastic. Uh, definitely do that. And uh, like you said, there was the, uh, the beta test of an app. Uh, we're going to give that a look as well. And, uh, and hopefully that will come out so everyone can enjoy the method that you experience. I, I think the, the kind of idea of using phrases is something that a lot of experienced polygons, they'll go through a sort of revelation going from words to phrases. So, so I can't wait to see what you, what you come up with there. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll be uh, eager to see, uh, to hear your feedback too. If you're looking for a language teacher to enhance your language learning, then I highly recommend italki. Italki is the world's biggest tutoring platform and you can find thousands of teachers and tutors at very reasonable prices. Get a free lesson after completing your first lesson by going to languageteacher.co.